0: Please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales, the series podcast.
1: Today, a murder mystery from the Grave Tales Brisbane Volume 1 book, The Jack the Ripper Suspect, Walter Thomas Poirot.
0: It would seem unconscionable that a serial killer who so cold bloodedly murdered at least five women Could now rest in peace on a leafy hillside next to his last wife in a Brisbane cemetery. But that may well be the case. Sydney resident Steve Wilson believes his great great grandfather Walter Thomas Perot, who is buried in Tuong Cemetery, could be Jack the Ripper. Walter Perot was living in London and was 21 years of age at the time of the Whitechapel murders. Wilson's great great grandmother was one of Perot's 20 wives. Wilson has spent 25 years researching his facts, and his findings cannot be easily dismissed. The subject of legend and folklore, Jack the Ripper was never caught, nor his identity discovered. Yet five of his killings in just four months continue to fascinate crime enthusiasts everywhere. Could Walter Perot be Jack the Ripper?
1: Well. We know that he was certainly one of Australia's worst con men of all time. As for Jack the Ripper, let's have a look at it and see how it stacks up. First of all, uh, some of the background to this, of course, what happened in London in 1888 and 1889. There were a series of murders known as the, uh, the Whitechapel murders. They took place between the 11th of April, 1888 and February in 1891. That's the broad span of them, Mm -hmm. the 11. It's five that we're interested, what they call the canonical five, we'll come back to that. They took place in Whitechapel, as the name suggests, about five kilometers east of Charing Cross, the center of London in the East End. It's a Docklands area. It's always been home to immigrants, very much the working class. In the 19th and uh, earlier 20th century, many Jewish settlers uh, came to uh, that part of London and there's still quite a, a Jewish influence in some areas, the East End. The latter half of the 1800s, Bangladeshi immigrants moved in there. Now, of course, it's home to the gigantic East London Mosque and the uh, London Islamic Centre. By the 1840s, the East End, and I talk about Whitechapel and Wapping and Mile End, Limehouse, Oldgate, those suburbs had uh, devolved into the classic Dickensian London poverty, mm. crime, home of the uh, the desperate and the destitute. Mm. It was a maze of dark and dangerous alleyways, and there was one street there called Dorset Street, which the police believed was literally the worst street in London. There's a bloke called Ralph L. Finn who described Dorset Street in his memoir of Jewish boyhood, and he says it was a street of whores. It teemed with nasty characters, desperate, wicked, lecherous, razor-slashing hoodlums. No Jews lived there. There were pubs every few yards, bawdy houses every few feet. It was peopled by roaring, drunken, fighting, mad killers. Nice description. Mm,
0: Cheap rent then. (laughs) Yeah, cheap rent. In
1: 1888, uh, the Metropolitan Police estimated that Whitechapel had 1,200, as they put it, very low-class prostitutes working out of 42 brothels. So this is the place where Jack the Ripper, as he would become known, uh, would ply his trade, a melting pot of vice and violence, suffering, filth and danger. So let's look at his, um, his victims. The first of his victims, as far as we know, when I say these victims, I'm talking about now what they call the canonical five, which is the five that the police believe Jack was responsible and those, those five only.
0: So the other victims they thought were potential copycats perhaps?
1: Yeah, or just you know coincidental in terms of the timing because some of them were quite a distance later. Because Jack was never caught, it was entirely impossible to tell how many victims he'd had. Experts and police considered the methods that were used, the nature of the wounds and mutilation. They were unable to connect many of the others to Jack the Ripper. Mm. So the canonical five. Victim one, Mary Nichols, 31st of August, 1888. Uh, she was found around 20 to 4 in the morning in a place called Buck's Row, um, which is now Durwood Street, by a, a dray driver by the name of Charlie Cross. She had been attacked so viciously that her head was almost severed from her body when her throat was slashed.
0: So, I'm guessing Mary was uh, a prostitute of the night to be out at that hour, perhaps?
1: Maybe, yeah. yeah. Or returning home from somewhere, right. uh, from one of the, the pubs in the area, perhaps. This is interesting because it indicates that Jack may have had a degree of luck in his adventures. A doctor arrived about four o'clock in the morning. He surmised that uh, Mary Nichols had been probably dead for less than half an hour, mm. which, if you work out the timings of that, means that he got away probably by about 10 minutes. Wow, okay. Second victim, Annie Chapman, the 8th of September, 1888, just eight nights and a couple of kilometres from where Mary Nicholl's body was found. Annie had been living in a lodging house in Dorset Street, you know, the worst street in London, and she had to pay tuppence a night to stay there. This particular day, she didn't have the tuppence, and despite being ill, she uh, went out on the streets at night, to try and raise the money Mm. uh, to be able to stay there the night.
0: It's heartbreaking, isn't it, when you think, you know, there's no welfare or anything at that time. To have a bear for the night, she's had to go out, you know.
1: Her body was found at 6 o'clock in the morning in the backyard of a house in Hanbury Street. She'd been horrifically mutilated and part of her body had been taken away. Mm. Third of the canonical five, Elizabeth Stride, September 30, Duffield's Yard, in what was then called Burner Street, now Hendrick Street, in Whitechapel, about a kilometre and a half from where Annie Chapman was found. It had been three weeks weeks since the last killing. Duffield was a van and cart maker, the place where her body was found. Elizabeth Stride's throat had been cut, but she hadn't been interfered with in any other way, which made the police think that perhaps the killer had been disturbed given uh, the way he treated previous victims.
0: They still felt that was a Jack the Ripper victim.
1: Yes, they did. Almost exactly the same time as Elizabeth Stride, the third victim's body was uh, discovered, At about one o'clock in the morning, the next of the Whitechapel victims of the Ripper was being released from Bishopgate Police Station. Her name was Catherine Eddowes, and she'd been detained for being drunk and disorderly. She was making her way home around about this time. Coming from one direction, the killer of Elizabeth Stride was converging from the other direction, through the lanes and back streets, while attempting to avoid the police who were now looking for him. Constable Watkins made the discovery in Mitre Square about a quarter to two in the morning. He would later say, I've been in the force for a long time, but I never saw such a sight. The body had been ripped open. Mm. If the Ripper had been denied uh, any satisfaction from mutilating the body of Elizabeth Stride, where he'd obviously been disturbed, he had more than made up for it uh, with Catherine Eddowes.
0: So to state the obvious, these are real hate murders, aren't they? Oh yeah. They're vicious murders.
1: Yeah. Before we go on to uh, to victim five, uh, we need to deal with a few things. Catherine Eddow's case, um, the police believe, was the only time in this whole affair where the Ripper gave a clue. It was only one. Um, he took part of uh, Catherine's apron to clean his knife. He wiped the blood off it and left the uh, the piece of apron in the doorway in Golston Street where he had sheltered after the murder. So what are the clues? Police believed. Uh, This confirmed the killer was a local uh, and that he lived in the East End. It also told them the direction uh, in which he was heading. Also on this night, the great non-clue, as it's been called, the writing of the wall of the doorway where the apron was found, the Jews, it said, spelt wrongly, J-U-W-E-S, are men that will not be blamed for nothing. There had been some indications that uh, someone Jewish may have been involved and there'd been some newspaper headlines run during the search for the killer. Police said they were looking for the leather apron. In other words, a a man wearing a leather apron and many Jewish workers um, wore leather aprons. The police were worried that there would be full-scale attacks on Jews, that there'd be anti-Jewish rioting. And so they erased that writing on the wall that night.
0: Can you imagine that these days? We'll just erase these couple of clues so that uh, no one's offended.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's a curious way to think about it. Back in uh, Whitechapel, there'd been now a night of two murders, and the place was in full tilt panic. One paper put it like this. The district of Whitechapel and Aldgate is in a state of ferment and panic. All night long there have been people in the streets, standing around coffee stalls, and at other points talking of the latest horrors, and even the men seem to be in a state of terror. Extra police have patrolled the streets and police authorities have come to the conclusion that publicity is the greatest aid to the detection of the perpetrator, and all information is cheerfully imparted to the press.
0: Even back then? Publicity was being sought.
1: And maybe um, the extra police effort was working as well. Mm. There were no murders in October, but not many people believed he wouldn't strike again.
0: And many of these women, these workers too, had no choice but to go and ply their wares. You know, They couldn't stay at home because they were frightened. Yeah. They had to raise their rent, they had to make a living, they had to eat.
1: They lived and worked on the streets. Two yeah. letters then emerged, uh, one to the Daily News and another one to the President of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, Uh, which came with part of a human kidney. The first of the letters sent to the Daily News was published on the 1st of October in 1888. It was written in red. It's too long to go through all of it probably, but he uh, points out in the letter that he wanted to write it in blood, but he couldn't get the blood to remain liquid for long enough.
0: Thin enough to act as zinc.
1: Yeah. Out of that headline that was on, on the paper that day that that letter was published were the words Jack the Ripper. And from that point on he became known as Jack the Ripper. The other letter to the chairman of the Vigilance Committee containing part of a kidney, supposedly from one of the Ripper victims. Did it really come from the murderer? Probably not. Probably both didn't. The first published by the Daily News was according to police the work of in their words an enterprising London journalist Mm. who they said was known to them. The second with the kidney showed it was probably from a hospital dissecting room because it had been preserved in alcohol.
0: That's an interesting clue in itself though. How did he get access to a kidney that was in a hospital dissecting room?
1: If it came from the ripper, it's a good question. Publication of the letter obviously did nothing to calm the situation, quite the opposite in fact, the place was on a knife edge. Then November 9, almost six weeks after the last murder, he struck again and this was the most shocking of all of them. There was a landlord who had property in Dorset Street, you know, the place we've mentioned a couple of times. The Worst Street in London. The Worst Street in London. The name of the place in Dorset Street was Miller's Court and one of the rooms there was rented by a lady called Mary Kelly. The landlord sent his young bloke around to get the rent from Mary When he got there, the young fellow noticed that one of the windows was broken. It had been blocked up with newspaper and material of some sort. So to see if anyone was in there, figuring that probably Mary had bolted, he took the stuffing in the window out and looked in and saw the most terrible thing he was ever going to see in his life. He saw a woman called Mary Kelly, as I mentioned, literally cut to pieces. And what was left of her rearranged across her bed. No clues except the modus operandi of Jack the Ripper. The uh, swiftness of the attacks, the manner of the mutilations performed on some of the bodies which included disembowelment and removal of organs led to speculation that the murderer had the skills of a physician or a butcher, a matter that was considered in the investigation. That was the end of what were called the canonical five murders. The five police believed were the only five that Jack the Ripper committed. There were others, um, some uh, later on. Rose Milot found 20th December, 1888. Uh, The police said reasons that uh, Jack was unlikely to be involved was the long period between the murders, no mutilation and death apparently by strangulation. So there were others as well, but there were the canonical five were the ones that were focused on. So could Andrew Gibson be involved? Andrew Gibson or Walter Perot, as we know him in Australia. This was a huge investigation Too hard to deal with all the suspects. There were over 2,000 people interviewed. Upwards of 300 people were investigated and 80 people were detained. None of them was Gibson that we know of. Case has been closed since 1892 and no one has been formally charged. So what do we know about Gibson? 21 years old, known to London police as a forger, and claimed he was related to the royal family. Uh, Small-time deceptions, but indicative of what he was about to become and indicative of the confidence that he would need to carry out the murders Mm. at such a young age. He lived in Limehouse, which was just a couple of kilometres down the um, A13, 30 minutes walk. And according to his family, and this is the interesting one, he sailed for Melbourne just hours after the last of the Canonical Five was murdered, on the 9th of November, 1888. Mm. And we do know that he landed in Australia as a result of that.
0: What's interesting is a confidence comment you just made. 1888 was a different time in as much as today. We're very closeted for a long time. We spent a long time at school. We marry later. In the 19th century... It'd be nothing to be married by 16 or 17 and have your own family out working at 13, 14, 15. So for a man 19, 20, 21, there's probably quite a bit of uh, worldliness about him compared to somebody perhaps today. So that may have contributed to the confidence too.
1: Absolutely. And as we find out as the story continues, the lack of sophistication of the criminal investigation system at the time made it a lot easier for people to move from one place mm-hmm. to another, uh, continue to commit crimes without being detected.
0: Absolutely. So then he arrives in Melbourne. And here he continues doing one of the skills that he developed in London, his forgery. He became a specialist in female nervous disorder and called himself Dr Ernest Moore Chadwick of Melbourne. Mm -hmm. There he was overwhelmed with clients because, you know, without being indelicate, doctors often had to help relieve patients uh, and relax them and whatever was required by the lady. So he became very, very popular until he started having an affair with a patient. Husband showed up and he had to flee town quickly mm-hmm. and he went to Sydney. Right. There he became Dr Henry Irving Llewellyn Cooper <laughs> and he's continued to do his forgery but his latest trick was to say that he was a recipient of a fortune that was coming. He'd been left it in a will. Here's the paperwork just waiting for that money to arrive. He received a lot of credit on that basis. Mm. In those days they didn't have the credit checks like they have now and they weren't uh, as suspicious as they are now, of course, so he only had to show these excellently forged papers to say the money was coming his way and he was granted considerable credit. He married a young heiress, moved into a Glebe mansion and they had two daughters, but of course that money never arrived mm. so eventually he had to flee. But that daughter will come back to the story later so just remember her. After that he became Surgeon Commander Percy Parker. Same story again, no divorces here, mind you.
1: Okay. He still, knave, in uh, still
0: in Sydney? Still in Sydney, married, and they sailed to the UK on forged cheques because the money was coming. And when he got to Scotland, he took her money and deserted her there. Wow. He then became Sir Harry Westwood Cooper. He won the heart of a lady by the name of Miss Ida Maud Campaign, and the two of them fled from Scotland to Chicago. Right. While he was there and they were living with the landlady, he confessed to the landlady that he actually wasn't married to Miss Ida, and he wed the landlady, and then he took both their money <laughs> and fled. He was a rotter.
1: Yeah, he absolutely. was a
0: rotter, but he was clearly very good at what he did. He was actually caught then, spent three years behind bars in San Francisco, and in his possession were hundreds of blank checks, forgery items, documents, stamps, everything you need to do counterfeit documents uh, authentically. So Sir Harry Cooper goes to jail. And of course, it was only three years because, as you mentioned earlier, they didn't have the techniques then to cross-check what crimes were done where and if he was wanted elsewhere, etc., The next one is my favourite, though. I call it the audacious wooing of Miss Nora Schneider in 1901. She was a beautiful young lady. She came from money, and he wooed her. He bought extravagant gifts again on credit. Mm -hmm. What was very interesting was how much was given to him on credit. He bought his fiancée, the most costly wedding ring and gown trousseau ever seen in California an engagement ring costing $5,000, all obtained on approval.
1: Approval meaning on credit.
0: On credit. Yeah, because Not you know, paid for. No, because his money was coming, yep. of course. Here's documents to show he'd inherited it from a will. And, of course, he was um, a doctor, Dr. Chadwick's. Yes. Uh, very credible. Absolutely. Handsome, dashing, you know, the English accent, the whole bit going. He was a fine catch. you <laughs> would have loved him. Now, with an inflation rate of about 2.9%, yep. you can work out that that ring and Trousseau was about $137,000 worth. His hurried plans to get married worked against him because Nora's very clever mother then started to get a bit suspicious. With her husband, Mrs Snyder, an eminently sensible woman, decided she'd visit their lawyer. So off they went to their lawyer in San Francisco. The lawyer found no such legacy existed and no such noted solicitor firm existed. So when they came home, he'd already eloped with Nora.
1: (laughs) So they put two and two together that the the good doctor wasn't quite uh, all he said he was.
0: Exactly. And then, of course, they had to get Nora back. His photo was circulated. They obviously had a photo at the time where we were etching or drawing. It was Mm -hmm. circulated to the police, and he was arrested in Utah. They'd been married, and the marriage was annulled immediately, and the doctor... And we use that term lightly received 10 years in jail wow. it's time for that sting
1: there were never any divorces in all this this chain of marriages
0: no never any divorces and of course who would know that he's married he's applying for wedding licenses in each new country so now he has 10 years in san quentin jail which is a reasonable amount of time And you think that perhaps during that time he might think about his life and perhaps think, you know, shall I redeem myself? What a rotter I am. I have enough money now hidden away to stop doing this. But no, he's in there for a short time and he woos the missionary worker, Miss Anne Van Velden.
1: What, who comes to visit the prisoners?
0: (laughs) He comes to visit the prisoners with a good heart that she has, bringing them hope and the Lord's message. So he obviously decided he was redeemed and said all the right things and then married her. So, of course, her parents had that marriage swiftly annulled. Then a masterful piece of forgery, he created a letter with all his documents and he bribed a man visiting another prison to present it at the jail office. It was a forged writ signed by a local superior judge ordering his release to carry out investigations with a view to establishing his own innocence.
1: So he wrote a letter from a local judge, which was then given to the the governor of the prison to say to let him out. And so they I did. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they did. So Dr Chadwick was released and was very promptly recaptured once it was realised what he did, but it was yeah. very, very clever. Yeah. And he was released in September 1911 after doing his 10 years. Walter Perot is free again, he's overseas, and this time he decides to pose as Dr Milton Abraham. We're talking 1912 now. And he marries a nurse that he met on his shift, Anna Milbraith. He gets exposed there and he deserts her in London and returns to Brisbane. Oh,
1: right. So he's back here again. He's back here oh, in how Australia.
0: Nice. How nice. Welcome <laughs> home. Returning to Brisbane in 1913, he meets another nurse. Father's another child. Marries her. No divorces. He's now got a string of wives all over the place, string of fortunes hidden, Lord knows where. And then, of course, he has to abandon them. But this is where the first child he ever had with the Glebe heiress comes yep. back in. That child's now in her early 20s. And she seeks him out as her father. And hears about that child that's been abandoned and adopts the child as her own. Her mother, as you can imagine, is furious and disowns her for life.
1: Right. Life's getting fairly complicated for Andrew Gibson or Walter Poirot or whatever name you want to give him, of all the ones he's used. It
0: certainly is. But... Again, Walter is caught and he spends another 14 years in jail, which is quite a long time, Mm. so now he's almost had 25 years in jail.
1: And he's getting older. He's he's getting older.
0: He exists, but he's still a charming, educated or pseudo-educated man with a lovely accent, who's a doctor, good-looking, and there's a lot of lonely women out there.
1: So he's back in Brisbane.
0: He's caught in Sydney. He's extradited to South Africa for trial in Durban. He received another seven years in prison and another seven years in the UK for forgery after that. He's released in 1940, so the war is on. He's aged somewhere between 67 to 70 years. As we know, we've got so many falsified records, it's hard to tell when he was born. And he's free again. He's still charming. He's still quite a handsome-looking, mature man. And he gets a position as a fill-in doctor in a maternity hospital, mind you, at Stoke-on-Trent in England. Now, this is when he comes unstuck again, and this is where we have another murder. He's faced with an emergency operation. A lady by the name of Mrs Gladys Higginbottom comes in. She needs emergency surgery because she's in childbirth. Mm-hmm. He's under the name of Dr Darling and he has to perform that surgery and of course he can't. Yeah. So she dies on the table. Again, he gets 10 years for manslaughter and all the media has headlines such as man on bogus, doctor charged, no bail, 10 years. He went to trial, pleading not guilty. After he eventually gets out, he returns again to Australia. So his next role is a doctor at Safala Hospital in New South Wales. Yep. One of the chemists said he wrote prescriptions which were unhesitatingly filled by us because they were so good. His Latin was so good. They were well written, the same as any ordinary doctor. A clever forger.
1: So here's this bloke on one hand, someone suggesting might be Jack the River. Cold, calculated, brutal mm. murderer. But this person is also able to write Latin.
0: Well, he's a clever man and perhaps we thought somewhere along the line that Jack was too. But while he's in Sephala Hospital, the police... Uh, are wise up to him, and as they come in the front door to get him, he heads out the back door Mm -hmm. and escapes. And he goes to Peel Island, the leper colony.
1: Here, uh, in in Brisbane? Yes, and as
0: a a male nurse. And that's pretty much the last job he'll ever have. And, And probably no one cared. He's out of the way there and he probably should have stayed there. There's a couple of links to why... Perot and Jack might be linked, according to his great great grandson. Walter Perot, during all his years as a doctor, wrote a number of textbooks and they're still available in the national libraries. Still
1: there and they're, they're still, still available. There.
0: They're still there and they're still available. Uh, medical textbooks, Elementary Hygiene for Nurses is one of them, yep. and Surgical Nursing and After Treatment. And they're written in his name of H.C. Rutherford Darling, M.D. In those books, he expresses his pathological hatred of prostitutes. He wrote in one of his medical textbooks, they are the cause of all diseases and they should all be wiped out with an axe at the very root of this deadly evil. So like Jack the Ripper, he used a smattering of medical knowledge to his advantage. His great-great-grandson reckons that he's got a writing sample that's very similar to those two letters, if that was written by Jack. And he was here at the right time and there at the right time.
1: Okay. So he's been on Peel. Uh, He's he's worked over there. Uh, He gives away, what, goes into retirement or...?
0: No, well, he comes off Peel Island and and this is when he has his last romance. And it's quite a sad romance, I think. He meets Elizabeth O'Leary or Bessie. Now, Bessie's a 58-year-old spinster. It's 1951. Bessie's never known love or perhaps she lost someone in the war, we don't know. And he woos her. He's probably now in his early 80s from our calculations. He, she's met this lovely doctor again promising his fortune is coming here's the wills i've been left the money it's on its way the stamp duty's just got to be paid she provides the funds for that stamp duty now bessie's probably got enough funds to live on for the balance of her life and she lives with his sister and he promises love security for the rest of her life and they're married but fortunately or unfortunately for bessie he dies within a year of their marriage so he really didn't get to desert at this time so at that stage she loved him She'd only had him for a year, and then the reality hits. Bessie approaches the solicitor when she finishes her mourning period to collect the fortune, and she uncovers his forgeries. Her lifespan has gone to pay the stamp duty, and the Brisbane police are called in. He's revealed and exposed as one of the greatest swindlers of our time. The newspaper headlines read, Inf- Infamous doctor located, fantastic confidence man and bogus medical practitioner Dr Harry Cecil Darling, 85, has been located at Brisbane dead. Bessie died five years later. But what is very interesting, and you and I both had a hard time finding <laughs> Bessie's grave, it was a bit of a shocker. It's up a hill in Toowong Cemetery. It's a little hard to find, and we'll, we'll give you, we've given you instructions in the book, but if you want to have a wander out, just look for a grave that's got a bit of green on it.
1: <laughs> and it's near there. That's it's the best you there, can say. yeah.
0: Uh, the exact location is Portion 7A, Section 185, Grave number 910 in Tawong Cemetery, and you'll find that in Frederick Street, Mount Coother. But it's got a lovely little twist, which um, you'll enjoy seeing the photo or reading about that in the book, uh, because it literally shows what Bessie's family and friends thought about her husband. The headstone reads, Bessie died 25th of June 1957, and her husband
1: <laughs> And that's it That's, that's it. all that Walter gets He's not
0: getting a name He's not getting any blessings or mentions so oh, That's it
1: Probably what he deserves
0: Yeah So It's a tenuous link I, I feel There's a lot of To Jack To Jack
1: Yeah
0: uh, But I think he's he's a reasonable contender He's maybe no more No less than anybody else But it's an interesting link
1: it's a tough one because, I mean, not a lot's been done on Jack the Ripper since the case was closed in the 1890s. No one's ever been brought to account for it. The only thing that's happened really since then was in uh, 1988, 100 years after the murders, the FBI, American FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation, did a profile on Jack the Ripper. And it's interesting to look at and compare what we know about. Uh, Andrew Gibson, who may have been Jack the Ripper in London, and Walter mm. Perot here and compare the skills or the makeup um, as we've seen it today and, and from what the FBI said. They concluded uh, that Jack the Ripper was a white male, 28 to 36 years of age. Mm, quite mature. Was of average intelligence, lucky, not clever. He was single, never married, had difficulty in interacting with people in general and women in particular, was nocturnal, and not accountable to anyone. He blended in with his surroundings. He had poor personal hygiene and appeared dishevelled, was personally inadequate with a low self-image and diminished emotional responses, was a quiet loner, withdrawn and asocial, of a lower social class. He lived or worked in Whitechapel, which we were talking about earlier, committed the crimes close to home. He had a menial job uh, with little or no interaction with the public. He was employed Monday to Friday, possibly as a butcher, Mm. a mortician's helper, a medical examiner's assistant or hospital attendant, mm. which is interesting given the proximity of the London hospital yeah. at the time, which was noted in the FBI profile.
0: And the kidney, if it was, yeah. if that was a genuine letter from him.
1: Absolutely. He was also the product of a broken home, lacked consistent care and stable adult role models when he was a child, was raised by a dominant female figure who drank heavily, consorted with different men, physically, possibly sexually abused him,
0: And that would bring home that link of his hatred for prostitutes if that's what he could see that his mother did or needed to do to keep them alive.
1: And a classic one that we now know uh, has some truth in it given other uh, profiles that have been done, particularly on serial killers, is that he set fires and abused animals Mm. as a child. He hated, feared and was intimidated by women. This is the FBI's view of him. Mm. Uh, Internalised his anger, mentally disturbed and sexually inadequate, desired power, control and dominance... He drank in local pubs prior to the murders, was seen walking all over Whitechapel during the early hours of the morning, did not have medical knowledge or surgical expertise, probably interviewed by the police at some point, did not write any of the Jack the Ripper letters Mm. and did not commit suicide after the murders stopped. So that's the FBI picture of him, and take that and compare it with what we know about Poirot. Well,
0: there's definitely some similarities there. You could say that he loved women because he was with women all his life, or he hated women because he took advantage of them all his life.
1: Yeah. Interesting. There seems to be a great contrast there, though, that if he hated uh, some women so much, maybe that was his way of expressing it, in what he did.
0: Revenge, and to, to, to fleece them. But interesting too, that comment about being uneducated, if he wrote that Jews are the men on the wall... Yeah, well, it was, was, it, was,
1: it was written to make it look like whoever wrote it was unintelligent. Yeah. yeah,
0: and he may well have been, of course, or he could have written it that way to look that way.
1: Interesting, however.
0: Very interesting, however. So, is Jack the Ripper buried in Tuong Cemetery, Brisbane?
1: You've been listening to Grave Tales, the series podcast. Look out for further episodes and connect with us at gravetales.com.au on Facebook and on Instagram. And look out for our tours. Music by Kai Engel. Copyright 2018. Atlas Productions and The Grave Tales.